0: This is The Guardian. I came to understand that closure, for me, it is a nebulous concept. It is a concept born from people who want to give people hope. Um, But for me, and I hate to be negative about it, but I've very rarely spoken to anyone who's caught up in it, uh, who believes that closure does exist.
1: Hello, I'm Lucy Clark, Features Editor at Guardian Australia, and this is Book It In, the podcast where we have conversations with top authors about the ideas that shape their work. Over the past 10 years, we've all seen the continual rise in the popularity of the true crime genre, whether it's in books, TV shows, or podcasts. Debbie Marshall is an author and investigative crime journalist who knows this genre very well. She's written books covering the family court murders, the Snowtown murders, the Claremont serial killings, and her most recent book is Banquet, the untold stories of Adelaide's family murders. I spoke to Debbie because I'm curious about why people read stories of true crime, but also why authors write stories of true crime. Debbie has strong opinions about the genre and the way it is treated in popular culture. And she also has a very personal reason that gives her special insight and sensitivity.
2: Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra.
1: To start our conversation, Debbie read an excerpt from Banquet, where she reflects on her experience of zeroing in on very grim realities.
0: My nerves are fraying. It's not just the writing, it's the seemingly endless research in this dark territory I inhabit. The sheer cruelty and the violence and torture, and fretting about how much the boys suffered, how much they were aware, the sifting of fact from nonsense worrying over how much a reader can stomach and whether I have crossed the line into barbaric sensationalism in my quest to expose the truth. I read until my eyes ache and conduct hundreds of interviews. It is hard to clear my mind, let alone my heart, of the horrors. Some days I feel like the world has abandoned me and question why I am doing this. Does anyone even care?'
1: There's a lot in that paragraph, Debbie, um, a lot of emotion (laughs) and um, I can, after reading 354 pages of your book, I can sense the exhaustion that you're feeling. If I could just get you to just tell us a little bit about what your book is, uh, Banquet, The Untold Story of Adelaide's Family Murders.
0: So what I'm an investigative crime journalist and author and this is my ninth book and I approached it with a... uh, uh, a grim understanding of just how bleak it was going to be. It covers an area from, from the very early 70s from Don Dunstan when he was Premier in South Australia right through to, to the late 80s and during the time from 1979 to 1983 there were five murders of young men that we know of, and I stress that, that we know of, uh, who were simply uh, either hitchhiking or picked up, mostly just picked up and abducted, uh, held captive for various amounts of time. One of the victims, uh, the last victim, Richard Kelvin, was just 15 years old. He was held for five weeks, which is uh, an incredibly long time, as you can imagine, before he was murdered. The book looks at the lead-up to to those murders, what was going on in Adelaide. It looks at the pedophile rings that existed at that time. It looks at the rumours of people in high places and I interrogate those rumours. I get as close as I can. I had done, prior to this, I'd done uh, um, a Foxtel series, a five-episode series called Frozen Lies. Uh, which looked at the murder of a of a lawyer, a gay criminal lawyer in Adelaide called Darren Stevenson, who ended up upside down in his own freezer just two weeks before the first family murder victim, that of Alan Barnes, who was just 17 years old. And in looking at that, I then started to look at the family murders. I'd been circling them for about 20 years and I knew I just wasn't up to doing it, um, but I guess at this stage in my career, I'm um, at the top of my game, and and decided to to do it. I had a lot of people come in on the back of the series, and also then the podcast, and that I did a five episode podcast, coming in with streams of information about, uh, you know, being victims themselves to uh, these pedophiles, to giving me extraordinary stories that, that I had a, look, had a look at and I then put in the book. Uh, this is just the tip of the iceberg, Lucy. I, I've only just started this story. There are so many people coming in now just on the back of publicity for the book who are telling me stories, including about the Beaumont children. It doesn't just cover the family murders now. What I'm asking for is the lifting of suppressions on d- on names that have been sitting around people who may know more uh, for, for you know, for, for decades. They've been sitting there and there's no reason for them to be there anymore in a legal sense. They were put on to protect the integrity of the trial. That no longer exists. Um, there is no trial. There are no further charges. People are getting older. People are dying. We need to get to that small core of people who were involved who are left and if they are involved, they need to be prosecuted. You wrote that this book
1: is the darkest and most complex you've ever written. Why is that?
0: Well, I, I was going into territory, Lucy, that I knew that I had to be on the top at the top of my game to, to uh, inhabit, for reasons that one, you know, the torture in the murders was just completely off the scale. And I've done some horrendous stories, you know, on serial killings and serial killers. But this one just affected me so deeply because of the age of the young men, because of the randomness of the murders, because of the sexual torture, because it haunted um, Adelaide for years and years and in fact still does because four of them remain ostensibly unsolved. Uh, It was a story that I could not get out of my head or my heart. It took me completely to the edge of PTSD, uh, where I still am. I've had to have some some counselling just to try to get rid of some of the horrors and I think I had to make a decision how close I got to those horrors. How much does a reader need to know? And I made a decision very early in the piece that I would put it all in because in doing that and... The reason behind that decision was people need to know. They need to know what was done to these boys. We need to love these boys as their parents did. We need to care about them. And how can we do that if we don't understand them and we don't understand their murders I'm very sorry to hear that you're
1: you're suffering PTSD. I can fully understand that is the case, given you know having read the book.
0: Well, not um, necessarily suffering. Sorry, I probably should change that. What would I said: not necessarily suffering it, but very close to the edge of it, yes. and, and, and don't want to fall into that abyss. I've seen too many people go there.
1: You do write in your book. I had to step back from the abyss of possible post-traumatic stress, and it sounds to me like a you know such a dangerous place to stand and now you say you're, you're facing a more work on this story that you haven't wanted to face for 20 years but you are now because you're at the top of your game. It must take an awful lot of strength to face this story that doesn't seem like it's going to end for you for a while.
0: Yeah look it does I guess but the, the people who give me that strength are the victims and their families and that's why I do it. Uh, that may sound trite, uh, it may just sound like a journalist uh you know, making up things. Um that that is the truth that I, I actually stand on their shoulders. These are the bravest people who have suffered the most dreadful, dreadful uh things. You know, these are people, Lucy, who are handing the baton to the next generation and then to the next generation, the baton of grief. Because they're unresolved. They yeah. they don't have answers for this. They're demanding answers and they all spoke to me. Uh, one way and another, you know, this sorry band of broken people Um, and to take their stories was a privilege and the only thing I ever ask of of people reading this book is please don't buy it because it's a bit of light entertainment. Crime should not be, you know, we must always remember who we're writing about and why we're doing it. There has to be a reason and I, I can't bear this, Plethora of true crime sensationalism that we're seeing so much of.
1: Yes, I I, I do want to get to talking about the genre in a while, but I'm very interested to hear you talk about the guardrails that you put up for yourself, Um, the, you know, always prioritizing the families, um, the victims' families, and their suffering. It seems to me your work involves a lot of boundary finding really, you know, um, the line between your own safety and well-being and tipping over the edge, their well-being, and also the work that you do in terms of what is a journalist's work and what is a is police work.
0: How do you find all of those lines? Well, I tend to just jump over them because, you know, there's no much point having barriers that you can't Get th- past in this particular work, you know. As I said earlier, I had to make a decision how close I got to the horror, uh, and in doing that, I then had to make a decision about how close I got to the victims and their families. And so, the same decision was was there from the beginning. I'm going to get as close as I can uh, to hear their stories and to to hear the hear about the fallout from it. It's very easy if you, for example, if you read a newspaper article, to think, "Oh, isn't that dreadful." oh, that's just dreadful what happened to that person and then we skip over and have another cup of coffee and we're gone. I can't do that because I inhabit their territory for the the whole time I'm there and in this case it's been years. But what I do have, which is just such a blessing, is their trust. They trust me that I'm not going to sensationalise their stories, that I'm not going to betray them Uh, and in return... It's like having the door open to a home that's sometimes full of horrors, but it's a warm place to be too because of that trust. Is that door ever closed to you and, and how do you deal with that? Often closed, uh, but mostly from people on the other side, the people who don't want to be found, the people who don't want to be tapped on the shoulder. Uh, they can be really tricky customers and they usually are actually and you know what I normally get is, well, you'll be hearing from my lawyer, well... That doesn't happen usually either because what the last thing these people want is publicity. They just want me to go away. Um, and I'm not very good at doing that, Lucy. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm a bit of a dog with a bone uh, and I will keep interrogating things until I get somewhere near the mark or as best I can. And the other what? thing I say to victims' families is, you know, I can't promise you a result but I can guarantee that I'll try. Speaking
1: of results, um, there's a line you write about the notion of closure and how nebulous it is. How do you keep going when it is such a nebulous concept?
0: Well, it's, you know, you've got to have a light at the end of the tunnel where you have to believe, we have to believe as humans that people are inherently good, that justice uh, can be served, that the law is there to protect us, that the police are there to protect us. Uh, and so that's the line we have to navigate. And when we find that actually that's not always the case, that people are corrupt and that people can be bad and that people can actually be evil, uh, I came to understand that closure, for me, it and for the victims and their family, it doesn't exist. It is a, a concept born from people who want to give people hope I guess, Um, but for me, Mm -hmm. and I hate to be negative about it, but I've very rarely spoken to anyone who's caught up in it uh, who believes that closure does exist. Mm. You just
1: touched on human nature and I imagine it would be very easy doing the work that you do to... To slip downwards into a very negative view of human nature when you are steeped in research about humans doing unspeakably terrible things to other humans. So, what is your view on human nature? I mean, is it shaken by these stories?
0: No, no. In fact, quite the opposite because I'm always astonished at how courageous people are, how warm they are, how they allow me into their homes and their hearts. Uh, Trust is such an important thing in my work and to gain people's trust is such a privilege. It is seriously such a privilege to be able to go and disseminate their stories. Uh, I love people but as you say, the unspeakable horrors visited upon these victims these people need to be brought to justice Lucy that's way beyond time. I don't love those people. I go after them like a dog with a bone and they know I'm after them because I tell them you know I'm 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 coming after you you know you you need to. <laughs> be very clear that this is not going to go away. You just used the word evil
1: and I wonder if you believe in innate evil.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yes, I do. I think we only have to look, for example, at the horrors of the Holocaust to know that evil exists. But when you get it closer to home and you're going into that territory where there are so many victims, for example, before the five murders, there was something like 200 sexual assaults. Uh, and the most dreadful things done to these boys—they were drugged, they were sexually tortured, they were let go, basically given twenty cents and told to get on a bus. Uh, do I think these people who perpetrated that are evil? Absolutely, yes. And this—this this is the thing that haunts me—that you know what was done to those boys. We know because I—I I spell it out in the book. Um, it's a horror. So how, how could people do that, Lucy? How how could they get sexual satisfaction from hearing other people's cries? The bottom line is these people are cowards. They're total mm. cowards. They needed to drug them to get them compliant.
1: You've worked with other sorts of crime stories and um, I'm very intrigued about the time in your 20s when you worked in a prison and you were affected by that, and uh, you talk about uh, meeting someone who said, and it's a quote that has stayed with you about how they've come from slums through reformatories to prison this sort of pipeline of misery—and and you also wrote the book *Killing for Pleasure* about the Snowtown murders, uh, which was you know known as the Bodies in Barrel murders—and um, you've expressed thoughts about the cycle of intergenerational misery and poverty and how those elements can contribute to crime and the making of criminals. Can you tell us a
0: bit about that? Well, Killing for Pleasure is a good example, you know, the bodies in the barrel. Uh, so in doing that story, I waded into the other side of Adelaide that I that I captured in, in this latest book, Banquet. Uh, you know, Banquet covers off the bright lights, the festival city, the restaurants, the, the high end of town. Killing for Pleasure covers the other end. And that other end is not somewhere I would ever want to live. Uh, It's intergenerational poverty. It's that cycle of of abuse and poverty and uh, lack of employment that that traps these people permanently to the welfare poverty trap. They, They can't get out. They don't know how to get out. And, you know, there are some really good people out there, some really fine people who do work, but mostly the people I was dealing with have never had a job in their life the women have never had know what it is to have a slash of lipstick on their mouth. Uh, you know, I went in one day, for example, to to the mother of one of the victims who'd ended up in in the barrel. She was pregnant when she was murdered. Uh, she had seven other children. Uh, the mother had a, a little child there. Um, I'm not suggesting she didn't love the child, but the ashtray was literally overflowing. The child was picking up the cigarette butts. In the end, I picked the child up. I was so distressed and it was cold. It was winter and I put this little boy just up against my chest and he, he um, started sucking his thumb and went into the folds of my coat and went to sleep. And it just stayed with me and it broke my heart. I thought, I want to go and rescue all those children who are living in homes where they're picking up cigarette butts so that's that's what I mean by that that cycle of poverty. There were some very great failures of society in that. and And also what happened in the Snowtown uh, story was that you know it, this went on for years and years and years before they were detected. These were welfare recipients who were just killing their own. And I just ask in the book who cared? Did did we just turn away from them and leave them to that? Is that what we did? Because I think the answer is yes. And it's not that the police didn't care, but it took a long time to get to mm-hmm. the truth of that, that matter. And it was beyond horrendous. The wheels of justice seem to turn
1: very slowly in all of these stories that you investigate what is your relationship with police? You just mentioned the police and, you know, and in general your thoughts about how police should work with media. At one point you in your book you write that you're told to stop meddling in police work. Do you
0: feel like a meddler? Well, it's never, it's never expressed overtly, but, oh, yes, I am a meddler. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I just, I never understand why police don't work with media. I mean, they're doing it now increasingly, but... But with me, I've always got that corporate blue wall of silence. The computer says no, uh, and that actually sometimes starts with the with the media unit at the police. Or, no, you can't have that. Or oh, look, I'll put it up. Or you know, actually, the other day I spoke to someone uh, at a media unit in Australia, and um, I asked her a question. You know, how does someone get hold of their witness statement, please? Oh, who are you? Who's calling? And I said, well, it's Debbie Marshall. Oh, Debbie. So, um. It's really unnecessary. Uh, But I think if if we worked together, we'd probably get a lot better results all round. But as I said, they are starting to do that now. But am I meddling? Yes. (laughs) But there have been some instances where that's paid off really
1: for justice, hasn't there? I mean, you've uncovered details that haven't been uncovered by police.
0: Can you tell us about one of those instances? Well, um, for example, the we're actually filming it right now um, an ABC four-part series on one of my books called The Family Court Murders and those cases had remained unsolved for 33 years. I started looking at them in 2012 and uh, and shortly after that the police opened a cold case. At that point I was working for Sunday night, Channel 7, and then I wrote the book on that and shortly after that um, he was arrested. Now, how much of that was due to my work? Who knows? Certainly the victims and the families um, attribute me to that, uh, to, his, to his being charged. Uh, but the cold case guys did a fantastic job as well, pulling all that together. But, yeah, you do. I did go in and, and find things and mostly what I did was as someone said, you know, you found the trout in the milk, <laughs> which is a lovely expression. Um, you, I put it all together. was such overwhelming, strong, circumstantial evidence in those cases. But when they did charge Leonard John Warwick uh, in 2015, they at, at trial they, they produced some DNA as well, which, is, which was amazing. But, yeah, so I'm actually working with those people right now, you know, the victims and... The families and, you know, doing incredibly long interviews to get their stories that will air on the ABC in, in May next year. So, you know, you can do some good in the work, but it is exhausting um, for everybody involved, including my family, who begging me never to write another true crime book. And this time I've listened. Uh, in the past, I've always said, I won't do another one. And then I do another one. When you say, okay, I'm not going to do
1: another one, your family's begged you, what is it that makes you break that vow? It's
0: the stories. It's, a, it's getting underneath the stories. What's happened there? Why are these unsolved? What's the truth of the... I, I'm just, by nature, a curious person, a curious journalist, uh, and I do believe, you know, a lot of these murders can be solved. It, you just need to maybe take another fresh look at them. I mean, if you look, for example, at the work that Hedley Thomas is doing, you know, he's extraordinary. Um, I have to say, he's a friend of mine, uh, but um, you know, his work's extraordinary. And there are other journalists out there who are doing amazing work. It seems like
1: an enormous responsibility.
0: Well, I guess I don't look at it like that when I go in, because if I did, I'd never be able to climb the mountain and get down the other side, step by step, day by day. I know, this book, though, with banquet, when I finished it, Lucy. I was so depleted, and like beyond anything I've ever been before. I very often finished books and sat at the keyboard and cried. But this time I just wept and wept for days. I just couldn't. Um uh, sorry, it's making me cry thinking about it. I just couldn't get this horror out of my head. Um so and how just do you say and so? just so outraged, so outraged at how it got to this and why these cases remain unsolved. Why do they remain unsolved? I mean, South Australia police call it an ongoing investigation. Well, is it? Which part is ongoing? Just because it's unsolved, does that mean it's ongoing? If it is,
1: you know, so ongoing and you've, you know, made this vow not to continue and you've just explained how incredibly depleted you were by the horror. How do you face the, the? you know, you you say you're being contacted by other people who have come forward. How are you facing that? Well, the thing I won't do again
0: is write another book about it. Okay, yeah, so there's definitely no next book then. Not on this particular subject and not on true crime, but I have to say that I have got so many characters, true characters in my head, so many interviews that have not Uh, made it uh, to publication even for this book so I I'm going to actually turn my hand to my first piece of crime fiction because it will all be based on truth there won't be any fiction in it it'll just be labeled as fiction yeah
2: So next July,
1: Debbie, it'll be 30 years since your partner, Ron Jarvis, went missing and was murdered. And you you played a big part in the tracking down of his killer, Stephen Standage. And there were seven months, weren't there, between him going missing and being found. I'm terribly sorry if this is difficult to revisit that time, but there's so much about um, the victims' families' stories in this latest book in particular where that terrible space where they're waiting, you must have implicit understanding of. Can you tell us a bit about that?
0: Oh, that's the worst part, the waiting. You know, when, when, you, when you have a, a body um, and when you have a funeral, You don't have closure, I don't think, but you have some sense of, well, you can put that part aside and move on with the next part and the next part is the grief, of course. But the the looking and the waiting, in my case, and I say this in the book, Lucy, you know, to lose a partner is dreadful but to lose a child as these people did in this book must be incomprehensibly horrendous. So, you know, I do draw a line under that because I think it's really important that I don't ever say to victims and their families, oh, I know how you feel. I have no idea how they feel. But I know how I felt. Uh, I looked for him. As you say, I found his killer, Stephen Standage, I knew pretty much from the get-go that he, he was responsible. I tracked him down. He threatened me uh, with my life. There were phone calls in the middle of the night, no one there. He told me to back off, that I'd end up wearing cement boots. I had a very young daughter at the time, very young. I was divorced, so raising her on my own. Um, And so as a result, very often in the house on my own, it was terrifying. But it didn't stop me looking for Ron because I was driven by that sense of need to find where he was. I had no idea he was dead. And also driven by a sense of, uh, you know, after they found him, it was like, right, right. Um, You're not going to get away with this. But uh, that time, that chasm between them going missing and then finding the body, in my case seven months, uh, I lost, I couldn't eat, I couldn't sleep, I lost a huge amount of weight, uh, I waded into the sewer of humanity looking for him. And my, Ron Jarvis was a beautiful guy, a country boy, twinkly-eyed fisherman, uh, but he was also a marijuana dealer on the side, which I was not aware of until very, very late in our relationship. He didn't ever want me to know we didn't live together. So he managed to hide that from me uh, and that's why he was murdered um, for the $10,000 that Stephen Standage had owed him. Standage went on and murdered another man 10 years later. So when he was telling me to back off, he would wear cement boots. He meant it. He meant business. Uh, Happily, he left a bit of DNA at the scene of the second murder, which was identical to Ron's murder, and... um, the police did get him on that and then they later they, they charged him with Ron. It was a very long time you waited for justice, wasn't it? Very, very long time, very long time, but I can tell you that it is the most marvellous moment when you get it. I was the Crown's chief witness um, and I had this moment actually, funnily enough, about six months after he was sent down for 47 years uh, because they put the trials together which he fought robustly against and lost, thank goodness. About six months later, I was at a garage sale of all places on a Saturday morning and in Hobart. And this person said to me, Oh, Hello Debbie, how are you? And I looked at this man, I thought, I've never seen you in my life. I said, Oh hi, hello, how do do we know each other? He said, Well, I know you probably better than you know me. I was the um I was on the jury. And I went, Oh, And so I gave him a hug. I said, thank you so much. He said, we were touch and go in there, really touch and go. He said, then you took the stand. He said, you were so passionate about nailing him to the wall um, that, you know, it it turned the tide. So passion can be a good thing, (laughs) you know. So... But it, it was a
1: 22-year wait for justice, right? I mean, that's an extraordinarily long time. What insight does that give you into the, the what must be superhuman patients that families of victims who haven't yet found their justice have?
0: Well, they need someone to hold their hand and help them. It, it, because what's happened, for example, in, in this latest book, they... As you say, they don't have any justice and they don't have any hope that they're going to get any because nothing's happened in the cases. The suppression orders are still sitting around people who may know more. Uh, you know the law's changed. the law of similar fact evidence has changed. they want they want. People to relook at it again. I want a lawyer to go pro bono and work with me to get those suppressions lifted, to so that people can come forward and say, "Well, actually, that was him." Because what we don't have at the moment is that smoking gun. You know, if you don't, if you've got a, um, a victim but not a perpetrator, you we, we can't get any justice there. So I think it's incredibly important. And every person I spoke to in South Australia, and I spoke to hundreds of them. They all said, this is an outrage, it's a disgrace. You know, are these cover-ups, what was happening? How come these pedophile rings weren't smashed? I mean, this is the days before the internet and the dark web. I just want to circle back to
1: when we were talking about Ron and the waiting that happened in that terrible time and the time in your life. And what, what were you doing professionally at that time? I'm just trying to work out what point you became an investigative journalist and, and how connected that is to Ron.
0: So I always wanted to be a journalist and I, and I grew up in Hobart and I couldn't get in uh, for some reason or another. And I eventually, um, so I thought I was, you know, a complete failure. So I did a teaching degree and I taught in Darwin for six months where I felt like Pavlov's dog every time the bell rang. It was just not my thing at all. I loved the kids but did not like the classroom confines, you know, I wanted to be a free-range chook. Um, and so I started uh, at the NT News in Darwin, and very quickly went out freelancing. Uh, and then it really hit my straps on feature writing because I love writing. Um, but very early in the piece, because when I was doing my teaching degree, I taught in Pentridge Prison, uh, taught writing, and you know some of these prisoners couldn't couldn't even read properly. Um, so I. I did some prac work in there, which I loved, and I got a taste for the dark side and also for that that sort of unseen humanity. How did these people get, get in there? You know, as you said, you know, I've come from slums to reformatories to prison. This was this man's life's journey. Um, but he was so intelligent. He had so much to give, but he was just a recidivist. He knew nothing else, nothing else. And then I... You know, started writing crime and then I was asked to write my first book, which was a biography, and I got the taste for writing books. And so on it went, yeah.
1: And how, how does that intersect with your time with Ron and your experience with Ron? And how, how does that experience inform what you're doing and what you've found is a
0: real forte? So Ron, I mean, I realised very early in the piece when Ron was missing that I had a um, I guess for want of a better way expression, the courage to to go after the person I thought had, well, knew about him missing. I didn't know he was murdered at that point. Uh, and my parents actually begged me to back off, please back off. You know, this man will kill you um, and I'm very lucky he didn't actually. So, so it, it really informed my sense of justice and then when I started working with victims in these books, um, I realised that I, I do have genuine empathy with them and it comes through, I think, in the work. You know, people people can pick up a fake in my life. So often people say to me, oh, you know, this journalist knocked on my door. That I said, no, I don't want to be their two-second wonder. Uh, you know, the big cameras roll in, the big cameras roll out and they're gone. I don't do that, I tend to maintain relationships with people. Um, For example, in the family court murders, I've been able to go back to them uh, because I've been dealing with them for 10 years. You just mentioned
1: courage before, and there's a really interesting conversation you write about in your book with a psychologist that you say you see from time to time for a debriefing session. You've just been to see them after your second visit to the convicted murderer, Bevan von Einem, and your psychologist says... There's a fine line between courage and
0: stupidity and you just crossed it. Mm-hmm. Did you? <laughs> oh, yeah, and I'd known this guy for years. He's, he's a sweetheart. Uh, I was Well, I'd bounced in there as I do. I've got quite a bouncy personality and said, oh, well, look, guess what? You know, I got an interview with him. He just stared at me and said, what do you mean? oh, you had a barrier between you though, of course. I said, no, we had nothing. We were almost crossing knees. He's six foot one, I'm five foot one and a half. So he said, so no barrier between you at all? I said, no, nothing. Uh, And I said, oh, there was a dreadful moment when I cornered him in a question and I said, oh, I saw the psychopath come up, you know, the black eyes, the, the pure psychopath. I said, for one awful moment, I thought he was going to strangle me. And he looked at me and said, he wouldn't have strangled you, Debbie. He'd have snapped your neck so fast that the guards wouldn't have been able to get to you. There's a fine line between courage and stupidity and you've crossed it. Don't ever do that again. Did you agree on reflection? On reflection, I think how fantastic it was to get into prison and talk to Bevan Spencer von Arnhem because it's been decades since anyone's been in there uh to meet that coward. So on reflection, I would do it all again. <laughs> but it was a frightening moment. And you do have in this work you have frightening moments. Uh you know, I'm I'm really concerned at all times about my personal safety. Uh, you know, I won't walk around at night on my own. You know, I'm a bit of a scaredy cat. Um, but I'm okay if I'm locked in and safe. Um Yeah, so, you Um, know, it does have repercussions. I'm really
1: interested to know how all of this plays out in your subconsciousness.
0: Do you have nightmares? Oh, big time, big time. Um, I have a beautiful husband, my second husband, uh, who consoles and soothes me at 3 o'clock in the morning and says it's okay, pats me down. Uh, Mostly he just wants me to go back to sleep and shut up, I'm sure, (laughs) but... um, I've had John Bunting, who was a Snowtown killer, literally, well, sorry, in my dreams, tickle me awake. Uh, I've had Robert Wagner, his his big hulking sidekick, uh, in my dreams, you know, stopping me getting out, um, out of my bedroom so I can get to my daughter. Uh, I've had horrendous nightmares and I continue to have them, but it's collateral damage. You can't do this work. If I didn't have the nightmares, I would go mad during the day. I'm sure of it. Uh, Some would argue that maybe I am.
1: (laughs) Oh, Debbie, I just (laughs) just seem so much. Um, So, how do you switch off? Do you? What do you like to do in your outside work life that helps you?
0: I have the most. Well, I have to say that I have become a grandmother for the first time congratulations thank you she's delicious I knew that I adored my daughter and I'd heard people talk about how much you love your grandchildren but I never knew that love it's just overwhelming and I miss her so badly while I'm away now filming um Look, we've just bought a waterfront shack because I knew, doing this book, that I needed that serenity. I needed a place of calm to escape. I'm I'm a busy person in my mind, and I'm a busy person physically. I can't sit still. I can read. I can sit and read and write. So solitude doesn't bother me. But I'm a, I'm a very social person. So I love to dance, to to entertain. I love cooking. I love my family, my friends. I'm really blessed. Um, I love red wine, you know, um, I, I just think life is for the living. You've got to get out of bed every day and get into it. Um, and thank you lucky stars when you go to bed at night, you know, you have got through another day. So that's. In a safe, locked up house. Yeah. In a safe place. Yeah. In a safe place. Surrounded by people who love you and you love them. And I guess a, a lot of your
1: work feeds into that gratitude that you feel as well you feel lucky
0: yeah I feel really blessed because it's look it's not everyone who can do this work it's not for the faint-hearted um some of my sisters for example can't even read the book my books my daughter can't read my books she said Mom, it's too dark it's too hard I don't know how you live there how do you do that and she's a journalist but you know it, it is it's tough work but you've yeah. got to remain positive, but there are days when I've crumpled, as I've explained. You know, you, I'm human uh, and sometimes it's got to be really careful that you don't stay in that corner crumpled. You've got to get up again.
1: Debbie Marshall is the author of Banquet, the untold story of Adelaide's family murders, published by Penguin. This episode was produced by Jane Lee, Daniel Simo, Camilla Hannon and Alison Chan. The executive producers are Gabrielle Jackson and Melanie Tate. And I'm Lucy Clark. Thanks for listening to Book It In. We'll be back with another new episode next week. Until then, happy reading.